innovative, often duplicated. When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it. Make it way harder for them to follow what I take. It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea. Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up. So just take your stuff, rake it up, and take the bus. Never fake the funk, you painted skunks. You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the wait is up. Fight. WHUPLP, Hillsborough, North Carolina, the center of the known world once again. This is the Cage Side Concussion Cast. I am Jeff Shaw, and we are your source for the fighting arts in the Carolinas and beyond. And boy, do we have an interesting and diverse show for you. We have two major grappling tournaments, one big set of MMA fights featuring a local guy, and an outstanding seminar uh, from a prominent international black belt here in North Carolina that we're going to talk about, which will also be our featured interview. If you've been paying attention to the social media, you'll know that is Sophia Drysdale, multiple-time PANS champion, uh, lifestyle coach, nutrition coach, fitness coach, and just overall knowledgeable individual about the grappling arts, about a healthy lifestyle, and somebody who did a, uh, an excellent 36-minute interview with me after her seminar at TFTC Academy in Cary. We'll get into that in just a second. But first, got to tell you how to get a hold of us. Uh, you can always like our page on Facebook. Facebook at Cage Side Radio, which is where we post most of the updates and most of the show extras. We'll be doing that right after this show. You can follow our Twitter and Instagram at Cage Side Whoop. That's Cage Side W H U P. Or you can email the show at Cage Side W H U P at gmail.com. You can always subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And if you like us, please do leave us a review. That helps us out a lot. We'll be hearing from Trevor Hayes in just a minute. Trevor Hayes went up with Daniel Branch to his fight at the Ring of Combat MMA fights in, in New Jersey against Garam Mestavishvili, and Trevor will have a, uh, an entire report on what went down there. But before we get into that, we'll start the new segment with me solo talking about some local jiu-jitsu. So there were two big jiu-jitsu tournaments that I want to talk about, uh, neither of which were in North Carolina, but a lot of local competitors competed at. Uh, the IBJJF Atlanta Open happened. And uh, this is one of the major tournaments, one of the closest uh, the IBJJF gets until Charlotte for the uh, in on October eighth, and so a lot of local folks compete. I want to congratulate Jin Ho Kim from Forged Fitness, who took uh, gold at Purple Belt. Unsurprising to those of us who trained with him, but congratulations to Jin Ho, outstanding performance. At Brown Belt, we had two local silver medalists, Tony Casares uh, from Lucas Lepre Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, took a uh, took a silver at the Brown Belt level. Uh, it's great to see Tony back competing. I know he's had a bad uh, bad run of luck with with injuries and such, and so it's good. To see him back on the competition mats, uh, doing well, and uh, and and you know, congratulations to him. And finally, Anthony Elbert, who you might hear from a bit later, another former show guest, uh, took silver at the brown belt level in his weight class as well. Anthony submitted uh, three of his opponents until the finals when he lost by two points, and so a really terrific performance by all of those folks. And congratulations to everybody local who competed. You can see the complete results on the IBJJF's website. Our other favorite uh, local grappling, our favorite local grappling organization, though, as you know, is U.S. Grappling, and they held a tournament in Virginia Beach, and a lot of great stuff happened. And one of the one of the, the cool innovations that they brought to the table is uh, Beverly Huang was posting live updates, so I was able to see in real time how the how the the tournament brackets were going, which is a really cool innovation. Thanks, Bev, for doing that. And so I'm not going to give you the entire results. If you want to see the entire results, go to usgrappling.com, where they're already all posted. But I do want to throw a few highlights at you, uh, which is, first of all, uh, 
really popular show guest, good friend of the show, David Porter. His first tournament at Black Belt. He had a super fight at Black Belt at Toro Cup against Adam Jetton, but this was his first tournament as a Black Belt. Went five for five, five wins, and took double gold against really stiff competition. Uh, some really, really talented Black Belts in that division. And so big congratulations to Dave Porter. Uh, really nice way to make his transition from being a random brown belt to being presumably a random Black Belt. So congratulations to Dave. Another new, newish belt. I know Andron Wright recently got his brown belt. Andron is a terrific technical competitor who's also a physical marvel was unsurprising to see him take gold at brown belt but congratulations to andron it was good to see him get promoted good to see him doing having success at the next belt level a couple more local folks to shout out were both from gracie raleigh uh, chris luter who uh who jason bumpkin wingate and i talked about on the last show won the purple belt absolute which uh congratulations to chris nobody trains harder than that guy and so it's good to see him have success his teammate andrew bittner took gold in his weight class and silver in absolute and consider that bittner has just been in hawaii so i mentioned that not so we're all jealous and hating on bittner but because we're impressed by the fact that he was able to come off of his vacation and do well at a major grappling tournament so congratulations to everybody who competed before i end i just want to throw a few shout outs to some juveniles who don't roll like juveniles gavin corbet favorite of the show won the men's blue belt division despite being 16 years old and Aaliyah Shell, daughter of John Shell, won the women's white belt division in her weight class despite being 13 years old. So congratulations to Aaliyah and Gavin. Terrific performance from both of them. And so that's the jiu-jitsu news. But for the MMA news, uh, for, for the, the, um, the, as I mentioned, the Ring of Combat fights, my man Trevor Hayes was up uh, tra- uh, traveling with Daniel Branch and was there at the fights, and he is on the phone to give us a live report. Trevor, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Daniel's nose, not so much, but we're in good spirits still. I'm glad to hear that. We do want to hear about Daniel's nose, and I'm, I, I, I've seen some of the pictures, but I'm not sure if the, the full... We, I want to talk to you about the full extent of what happened, but um, so tell so summarize the trip. What happened on the way up? Um, what happened in the fight? And, uh, and, how, and just tell us how that went. Man, it was a good trip. Uh, it was a really hospitable uh, promotion. Uh, Lou Neglia, he has a great show with Ring of Combat. Um... The New Jersey Commission was on point, uh, really well-run show, really blown away. Um, and uh, uh, with Daniel, um, you know, he was – it was a great camp. We put a lot of work in. Um, we knew it was going to be his last fight, and, uh, you know, so we put a lot of time in, and, and he was great. You know, he was loose. He was picking his shots. He had great counters. Um, and then, um, man, against the cage – the guy just broke off during a scramble and cracked uh, Daniel's an elbow just across his nose. And, uh, man, that nose broke real, real good. <laughs> and uh, Daniel kind of just like, as soon as we saw it happen, as soon as it happened, he kind of turned away a bit. And the guy followed up and the ref called in. As soon as he saw that nose just go flying across his face and the blood come out. So it happens, you know, broken noses happen. So, so that was not, rep- not what he wanted to happen for uh, – his last fight, but uh, you know what? It was it was good. It was a good fight still. Yeah. So so that was that wound up being a referee stoppage then, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes. so his opponent Garam Mestvrishvili uh, looked like a physical beast, man. He looked really tightly. Oh God, compact. the guy was a terrifying animal. But like a nice nice guy, but very explosive, very athletic, very Russian. Or Georgian, I take that back. Uh, and he so, was, but uh, and he fought fights out of the Sarah Longo team. I saw that you guys ended up meeting Ray Longo. Is that right? I mean, that's a very prestigious. Yeah, we were, very we well were talking to him. Um, you know, yeah, uh, like you know, Matt Sarah. We talked to him briefly. Uh, he wants to come back down to North Carolina. He misses everybody down here. Um, but Ray Longo and, and Pete Drago Cell, they were in his corner, and um, 
it's a, it's a pretty surreal experience corning across from guys that you look up to. Um, and they were very complimentary on Daniel. They said, hey, man, he looked loose, he looked good. He just got he got caught. It happens. So they were very nice guys. We talked to them for a little while. That's awesome. And, and, you know, as you say, you know, obviously you want to go out with a win on your last fight. It's not the way you want the fight to go. But this is a very prestigious team of fighters to compete against. And it sounds like a very oh, yeah. accomplished guy on the other side. Oh, yeah. He was he was ready, man. He was a very game fighter, very explosive, very, very well trained. Mm-hmm. So, so there's really there's really, you know, no reason to like Daniel's he- head is still held high. You know, we talked about it afterwards. He was like, hey, it was not what we wanted to happen, but it, it was a good way to go out. You know, he fought on a really big show. Again, so much like one of the best gyms, gyms in the world. So there's there, there's no shame in that. So we've broken down the fight. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other aspects of the trip. The weigh-ins you were able to Facebook live stream, and yes. that looked like a trip. It seemed like like for one thing, you had the "Let Me Bang Bro" guy from the UFC from the Ultimate Fighter on, on the card, and the dudes before that weighed in right before Daniel did. It looked like they it looked like there might be some fisticuffs before the fisticuffs. Yeah, they uh, he got in his, his face. He uh, Apparently, he's a fairly dramatic guy and likes to try and put on a show. So that was kind of funny. So I got to go back through. I can't remember if he won his fight or not. I think someone told me that he won. Someone told me that he lost. And I'm not sure. I saw him warming up with us. And I was like, man, how did you make the ultimate fighter? Because you can't hit Mitch and your jiu-jitsu don't look too good. Man. So it's like, funny. And that's what, that's what blew me away, man, is like, you know, like I saw a lot of these pros warming up and I was like, Really? Like you guys are pros? Okay, cool. So, <laughs> what, you know, you know a million times more about MMA and striking than I do. But like one of the things that we can we can talk about is that e- even in jujitsu, people assume that it's a pure meritocracy where the best fighters get on the best shows, and that's just not always the case, right? Marketing and you know being a a show you know, makes it makes a big difference. Yeah, having a good manager, having someone that can really pursue for big shows. And- and put your name out there can really get you on these big time shows and you know sometimes like you'll find these guys from smaller gyms that might not have the best skill sets but they're just good fighters and that's where they can come and like get these titles and get get recognized and get put on bigger shows mm-hmm. most definitely but uh yeah I saw, I saw i saw some guys and i was like like you know i saw some people i knew there from the MMA institute in virginia and um you know a few people i recognized from here and there and it was kind of cool and i saw some guys warming up and i was like man how do you have so many pro fights? How how can you not hit focus mitts? So that was kind of shocking. Yeah, most definitely. Most but yeah, but hey, it was a great show, man. I, like, if, if I had the chance to ever go catch a ring combat show again, I'd love to go see it. What were some of the other fights on this on the card that you particularly were impressed by? Anybody anybody leap out at you, or any particular moments that you want to share? Ah, uh, let's see. We missed a lot of the fights. I did watch. Um, the first fight of the evening, uh, Tevin Cook from MMA Institute. Um, he was coached by Rick McCoy, who I've uh, who I've met before, and he's DeWan Owens' coach. Um, I watched him fight. He was very for his his third pro fight. Man, he fought like a high level pro. It was very good. Uh, really clean technical strikes, great counters. Ended up winning by a standing knockout. So that was something else to see. Um, but. Uh, from what I heard, uh, immediately after that fight, there was a nine-second knockout and then a 15-second knockout from a spinning back kick to the head or a flying spinning kick to the head. Like, they said there's some crazy knockout, and the guy had to go to the hospital. So I actually missed a lot of the fights uh, just hanging out with Daniel backstage. Most definitely. So that was a bit of a bummer. 
Yeah, you know, and, and that's sort of the game when you're when you're cornering somebody, right? Is that you don't and helping to warm somebody up is you don't always get to enjoy the show yourself. You just kind of yeah, you kind of you're you're there to to do a job. So it is. Yeah, we treated it was a job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So did we you, were full on adulting. <laughs> so, uh, like, uh, what are, what are some? Are there any other like highlights from the trip that aren't related to the fight itself that that you want to share? I want to I want to get get some flavor of like what it's uh, like. Daniel to make Branch a trip like and I this. both now realize when people say, "Hey, stick to the boardwalk," you should stick to the boardwalk if you're in Atlantic City. <laughs> we found that out. We were uh, we walked up now the boardwalk. It was kind of cool. It's kind of like Myrtle Beach with gambling, and then um. On the way back, he was like, hey, man, we'll walk down this street. And I was like, are you sure about that? And we did that. And we immediately thought, wow, we really should not be walking down this street. So <laughs> when people tell you to, to stay to the boardwalk, you stay to the boardwalk Atlantic City. This, this is important information for all of us who, uh, who, uh, who want to go up to New Jersey. So well, Also, uh, I, am, I am quite impressed. You know, uh, hanging out with Brandon Garner is always a good time. And I can see that uh, Jason Culver's influence of uh, of trash talk has influenced him quite well. <laughs> Brandon Garner called me with some good quips, like some good verbal sparring here and there, and I was like, "Wow, he got that from Jason Culver." So was so. this? So was the smile on Brandon's face we saw in the photos more related to his verbal sparring with you, or more related to the cake that he got to eat? I think I think it was more of the cake. It was his cheat day, and so seeing that man on cheat day is pretty cool. <laughs> There's nothing quite like a cheat day, uh, you know. Yeah. And uh, given that the no. uh, the Atlanta or given that the Charlotte Open is coming up on October eighth, I feel that all too well. Yes. Yeah. No. It was a great trip. You know, uh, Daniel and I had a great time. We talked about it, man. I told him like the amount of work he put into that. I'd have followed the guy off a cliff. You know, uh, like he was as prepared as we could have made him. Um, it was great to hang out with Brandon Garner like that and Mike Somerville. You know, just we're all kind of just hanging out and swapping stories and. We still had some beers afterwards. You know, Daniel was a little upset. Of- <laughs> I apologize. All that New Jersey air, air made me sick. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was a really cool time. Like, we all got to hang out and just uh, being out of North Carolina and just swapping stores is a good time. You know, it, it was a very cool trip. Well, it's That's not- what I love fighting. You, you get to make little experiences like that that you hold on to forever. Something, something like that. Well, it sounds like a fantastic experience, despite the fact that the fight didn't go the way we had all hoped. I mean, so, congratulations to Daniel on preparing really well, competing as one of the a guy from one of the best teams in the world, and uh, and thanks for calling in to tell us about it, Trevor. Anything you want to leave us with? Um, no, I'll be up here uh, hanging out with my good buddies. I'll make sure I get some good interviews from uh, my good friends and and, and well seasoned individuals, uh, Rick Street and Roger Denton, which is weird to see a Muay Thai guy hanging out with a bunch of Jiu-Jitsu guys, but hey, they're my family, so I'll be uh, getting some interviews when we bring them back to you. We so. will look forward to those interviews. From uh, I really am interested in hearing from both of those guys from our, our foreign correspondent based in New Jersey, Trevor Hayes. <laughs> All right, bye now. All right, take care, Trevor. All right, so uh, congratulations to Daniel. I know that the you know it, it, it always... It's always unfortunate to lose, and and it's unfortunate when the fight that you train hard and the fight doesn't go the way that you wanted. But like Trevor said, you know things like this happen. I'm glad that uh, they had that experience, and thanks to Trevor for calling in to tell us all about it. So I'm gonna. Uh, so that's the news segment. If I missed anything, uh, do email me and let me know, cagesidewhoop at gmail.com. You can get us on Twitter and Instagram at cagesidewhup, and we'll get into our featured interview with Sophia Drysdale right after this. You are listening to the K-Side Concussion Cast. I am 
listening to the K-Side Concussion Camp. So I was very excited to interview Sophia Drysdale, and uh, thanks to everybody at TFTC Academy in Cary, North Carolina, who brought her in for a seminar, and to Gita Bott, who was instrumental in bringing her out. Part of the reason I was so excited to talk to Sophia is she's not just an accomplished Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, although she is that. Sophia was the first Australian woman to get a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, won the pans four times, is a two-time Nogi world champion, and and has just about all the competitive accolades that, that you would want from someone. Very technical instructor and delivered a really great seminar. But she's more than that. She's also somebody that has a profound focus on physical fitness, on diet, nutrition. And as she's transitioned away from competition, uh, which you'll hear about in the interview, she's transitioned more towards teaching and not just teaching Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but teaching lifestyle camps, which you'll hear about. She does personalized diets and workouts, uh, focuses on nutrition, and does a lot of a lot of work that I think people that are involved in the martial arts, as well as any kind of physical activity, are, are going to find really valuable. So I really enjoyed this interview, and I hope you do as well. So without further ado, here's Sophia Drysdale. So I'm here with Sophia Drysdale, who's just completed two seminars, several private lessons here in North Carolina. I understand this is your first time in North Carolina? It is, and I'm loving it. Yeah, um, lots of green. I need green um, and just good vibes. Everyone's really cool. So what kind of stuff have you been doing in North Carolina when you haven't been training and teaching jiu-jitsu? Mm, eating. <laughs> yeah, Gita, uh, my host, who brought me out here, um, she knows how to be a host. Uh-huh. So I'm very much well-fed. Yeah, North Carolina is a great place to eat. And it's also a great place to train and learn jiu-jitsu. And so you've taught a couple of seminars at TFTC Academy. Mm -hmm. And your first seminar was a women's only seminar. And today we did a co-ed seminar. And I'm wondering how you approach those two things differently. Is there anything different from a curriculum perspective? Or is a seminar just a seminar? Um, I actually communicate quite differently when I'm teaching a women's only seminar. And then when I'm teaching a co-ed seminar. Um, with women's only seminar, I really focus on teaching techniques that I know that women will get a lot out of, um, in particular things, um, where we've been taught a standard way by our usual male instructor and I've tweaked it that I know it works better for someone who's like 130 pounds. So I really focus on teaching them that sort of stuff. Um, I focus on their strengths. Um, so women have strong hips and you know the strength lies in their hips and thighs so I really focus on using the hips as leverage and balance points and stay away from using the upper body the upper body is just for framing and stuff so yeah it is really different and I find that I actually talk a bit differently too it's yeah I've got my hat for ladies and my hat for co-ed <laughs> hat for guys yeah so do you ever get any pushback from folks that say, why, do you, what, why is it necessary to teach women's only seminars? And, and why, do, why do you think it is necessary? What kind of value do you think that women only seminars bring? Um, no, I haven't received that type of reception. But um, there are some times where I've really stuck to my guns about teaching women's only seminars. And some of the guys have gotten upset. They felt excluded and they felt ostracized. And it's like, okay, I get it, but my whole mission really is to bring women up. 
And this sport just happens to be a vehicle in order to do that. So what I'm trying to do is actually goes way beyond teaching women a bunch of techniques. I'm really trying to build a sisterhood. And sometimes if there's guys in the group, it, it changes. The women change. I find that often they can't be themselves, you know. So that's why um, this was perfect um, where I had women's only and then co-ed. So it was an opportunity for the guys to be involved as well. But I had the women's only where the women could just be themselves, be chicks, and we could all goof around with no judgment or anything. And a lot of women did take advantage of both seminars, which was really fun, got a lot of really positive feedback on the stuff you taught. Um, the stuff we, you went over today was uh, largely guard passing, stuff on top. Um, do you consider yourself, like, wh when you know, you're a very successful competitor, won the pans several times, uh, and I know you do other th things now with nutrition and, and, and in fitness, which we'll get into later in the interview, but I'm wondering, do you, do you consider yourself more of a top? player more of a guard player or do you see yourself as a more well-rounded jiu-jitsu person um now I'm more well-rounded I like to play both uh, but as a competitor I definitely had more success by being a top player so I'd get my takedown and then I'd do my smash passes and then work my way to get the arm bar or the choke or or whatever so that's what I liked to do and I just felt I had more success that way as a competitor and one thing that I, I, I would never have known, and if you hadn't announced it to the seminar today, you're actually teaching with a, with a blown ACL. <laughs> that has to be really difficult and painful. And like, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, the teaching's not so bad. Um, or w The difficulty is when I travel as much as I do and people want to roll with me. I put my ego aside and I'm open to rolling with everyone. So I rolled last night. And the hard part is... Um, Sometimes, you know, you, you, you're used as a measuring stick where people are like, I want to know where I am against a female black belt. And I get that because we're kind of rare. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm not at full capacity. And with all my travel too, like you're tired and, you know, I got up at 4 a.m. To, to get here and all that stuff. And so it's, that's the difficult part. Um, but you know, I've been running camps all year and working around my knee and still having great roles with everyone. So it, I can work around it. So, yeah. Yeah. Caitlin Huggins, who uh, is a black belt that uh, is a very active and successful competitor out here, who went to both seminars said, you're the first black belt women role she's had outside of a competition context. And so that has to be, uh, did you ever experience that challenge, like getting matches when you were, when you, it, when you first started competing or even, even now? Um, I always had matches because I always did the bigger tournaments. So um, I always did the Pan Ams and the Nogi Worlds. I didn't compete in as many world championships because they were in Brazil for a while and then they moved to the States and I had like two years of really bad injuries. Just worked out timing-wise, unfortunately. But, um, but I agree with Caitlin. Um, it's hard to train with higher-level girls outside of competition and that's exactly what I'm trying to change. And so it's funny because because we're so rare, there's this sort of, almost territorial thing going on and I find it with a lot of other female black belts there's I don't know some ladies just have their feathers up a little bit because they don't know what to expect and I come in and I'm like we're a sisterhood that's it 
we're a sisterhood, we're in this together. And so when I saw Caitlin there at my seminar, I said to her, it's a real honour to have another female black belt at my seminar. And she was like, yeah, yeah, thank you. And, and I know that made a difference, you know, because I don't see myself as being any better than anyone. We're all in this together. It's a journey that we're all in together and I think that we should all be supporting each other. Um, the other thing is that to get to black belt level as a female, I believe that the journey is a lot harder Okay, you're subject to being ostracized, sexism stuff. You know, there's just stuff that comes up that guys don't have to deal with. And and that's why I just want to be like a point of support for everyone and be really pushing my agenda that we, we need to build each other up and support each other rather than cut each other down and compete with each other. I think the only time that we should ever be competing with each other is when we're at a tournament. And seriously, once the time has stopped, we're friends. I really think that's how it should be. So when you talk about your goals to like build this community and build this sisterhood, you, you mentioned that you've been teaching camps, obviously you teach seminars, you're, you're very active. What are some ways that you do that? How do you get there? How do you as, as an instructor or as a competitor, how do you, how do you make sure that that happens? Um, 2014 was my last year of competing. Um, I did all the big competitions, Pan Ams, Worlds, Nogi Worlds and Master Worlds. And um, after that, I was just like, you know what, I'm really going to focus on teaching. And I put the feelers out and the feedback was instant. I'm like, holy like crap, you know, people wanted to come to my seminars from everywhere. And, and then I started putting on these lifestyle camps and these women wanted the experience. And so what I'm finding more and more is that women want a female role model They want to be taught by a woman. They want to be guided by a woman who's done the hard yards, who's experienced that journey, um, walked the walk so that they know that it can be done, you know. So it's not just me doing this stuff, you know. There's some other amazing ladies who are teaching seminars and doing camps and really getting out there and, and building this community. And they're also receiving great response from other women because women want to be part of something they want to be part of this community and they want to be guided by women not men (laughs) so talk us through what one of these lifestyle camps is like for you how do you set the curriculum what kind of stuff goes on and and what keeps people coming back um these lifestyle camps actually came up by mistake (laughs) it wasn't planned but I was running a Pan Am camp and then people were like well can we get we want to know what you eat. We want to know what you do. We want to know how you live your life. I'm like, oh, okay. So then I thought, well, let's put on a lifestyle camp. These ladies can see like a day in the life of Sophia or five days in the life of Sophia because they go for five days. Um, And, you know, it's good for me and good for them. So the lifestyle camp is one or two days of jujitsu, but it's also all their meals are catered for and it's meals based on how I eat, based on my years as an athlete, my years as study and teaching. Um, I've been a trainer and a coach and nutritionist and all that stuff for almost 20 years. So while I was doing jujitsu, I was working, um, I, I, yeah, I worked for corporate companies doing, you know, sort of occupational health and safety, big corporate groups doing fitness workshops for them, um, personal training one-on-one. I've done it all. So that's a side of me that a lot of people don't know that was a big part of 
they only knew me as this jujitsu chick. But now I'm bringing that side out. It's like I'm amalgamating them both together and creating this whole lifestyle thing. And so it's not just the jujitsu or the nutrition. There's also the other factor of balanced lifestyle that I'm focusing on. So last camp I brought a meditate a meditator person out who guided all the ladies um, and we just talk about being zen and being mindful and so there's the, really the three aspects of the health that I'm focusing on in these camps. It's actually the nutrition stuff that I was most excited to ask you about. You mentioned you, you'd answered some questions of, of some of the seminar attendees and I'm wondering what you think and we'll get into the competition nutrition too because I mentioned in weight cutting and things like that. Mm-hmm. But what do you think the most common mistake people make in their diet, people that are trying to be jujitsu athletes, even if they're not being trying to be competitors, what, people that want to take jujitsu seriously to live a healthy lifestyle, what, what, are, what are some of the most common mistakes you see those folks making nutritionally speaking? Generally speaking, the most common mistakes are the fact that people think that they're eating the right foods when they're not, and it's actually not their fault. It's They're being misguided by really political agendas. So, you know, for example, a lot of us think that the only way to get calcium is to drink milk. A lot of us think that the only way to get iron is to have a big piece of steak. There are other ways. It's just not advertised, you know. And so people think that they're doing certain things to be healthy, but it's actually maybe not that good for them in a way. And everyone's different too. Part of it also is that people don't actually listen to their own bodies. So they walk around, you know, they have, I know a bunch of people that have irritable bowel syndrome or they have um, the heartburn or bloating or lethargy or whatever it is. And it's like, well, listen to your body. Maybe you're doing something that really isn't working and start eliminating some foods and, you know, honouring your body because you're an athlete. And so one of the mottos that I've always lived by, because I was a gymnast in in the elite squad where I trained at back in Australia. So I've always been training and I've always been eating right for my sport. Um, And so from a very young age, I was conscious and aware of this. um, And I was like, well, I'm a Ferrari And do I give my Ferrari uh, like the basic fuel or do I give it the highest octane fuel so it performs the best? It's a no-brainer. And it really amazes me to see world-class athletes eat crap. I'm blown away. I'm like, you're doing your body a disservice. It, it, you know, just to name a few prominent jiu-jitsu athletes, Gary Tonin eating hamburgers and fries, or when Leandro Lowe was interviewed by BJJ Heroes, and he's like, yeah, I drink a 32 ounce of Pepsi every day. I was, oh my God. I was like, and you're, these guys are still incredible athletes, and you just wonder if you actually treated your body the way you describe, like, what, what would you be capable of? Yeah, that's right. So it's about um, functioning or operating optimally. So these guys are freaks because they're just genetically amazing where their bodies can process everything and they can still function, but they're also amazing athletes, strong, agile, great recovery, all that stuff. Even though they've got those attributes, why not honour it even more and take a step further and just feed your body the food it needs to function the best, yeah. So you mentioned that it's a common misconception that – you know, that we need dairy for calcium, that we need, you know, a big old steak is the best way to get iron. You know, regular listeners of the podcast know that I'm a vegan, but I'm just curious, like, how do you, how do you see, is, is it more challenging as a vegetarian or vegan athlete to eat healthy or are there aspects of it that's, that, that's actually helpful? I don't believe it's more challenging to eat healthy because I think that you're eliminating a bunch of foods that aren't good for you. 
being vegan or vegetarian. However, the vegetarians that cut meat out and switch to just having like white bread cheese sandwiches, that's not healthy. Um, but there are a lot of vegetarians and vegans who really focus on eating a lot of fresh fruit and vegetables and raw foods and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm almost practically vegetarian myself. Before I was pregnant, I was a vegetarian since I was 15. And I made that choice largely because of how my body felt when I was eating meat. But then I started going into the ethical and environmental reasons as well. Um, I actually just watched a documentary on the methane produced by cows. Um, and that's the main cause of global warming right now. Just And also in this documentary, it talked about how um, raising farm animals was um, 91% of the Amazon being cut down was to clear land to raise these farm animals. So I don't know. I just think that we should all be aware of this and we should all be aware of how these farm animals are being treated as well. Like it's actually shocking. We don't know it. So I have a theory. If I were president, <laughs> I would make it mandatory in school that every child growing up, like 14, 15, they have to go out and they have to hunt and they have to kill a live animal and they have to prepare it to eat. Because we are so removed now um, from, from actually what it was where you see this perfectly wrapped piece of like meat medallion it doesn't even look like anything and so there's no awareness to the fact that that was once a living animal and I think that that would change this overconsumption thing that's going on with society right now I know we've deviated but yeah <laughs> I just think people need to be more mindful about eating in every way like be more mindful about the food they put in their body for nutrition reasons and being more mindful um for uh, ethical reasons like how the animals are treated and for the environment well you're definitely speaking my language <laughs> and so don't feel like you've deviated well, yeah the other thing is that you know there's plenty of other sources of protein you can get like I mean most people know that well I'm kind of known for my guns like seriously there's not a day in my life where I'm walking around where someone doesn't come up to me and say hey do you work out right I eat mostly eggs you know or you can eat have some decent protein shakes that aren't loaded with all that fake sweetener or tofu or legumes or, or whatever. There are options out there. What's a typical, like, what are some of your staple meals? Like the things that when you're eating clean, when you're training, like is the stuff that like hits the sweet spot of this is really good for me and also something that you find really delicious? Yeah. I actually just wrote an article for a magazine um, about like one of my perfect meals. Um, and it's had so much feedback, it's crazy. But uh, basically it's two or three eggs, um, baked or mashed sweet potato, some avocado, and like an arugula salad. Perfect. It's got, you've got your, your fat and your protein in the eggs. The egg yolk has all your fat-soluble vitamins and it has choline, what's really important for nerve transmission and stuff. Um, you've got the mashed sweet potato that has your good slow releasing starchy carbs you've got the arugula that's raw and it has the enzymes that you need um and the avocado which is a good monounsaturated fat honestly you cannot have a better meal than that there's no such thing as too much avocado in my cosmology 
and, uh, and so so that that's fascinating stuff from the general nutrition perspective you know from from a, a from an athlete perspective you know jujitsu is a weight class based sport which i've mixed feelings about but like i always tell folks i would way rather have you eating healthy and competing at your normal weight than 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 doing silly things weight cutting we've all seen really silly things happen weight cutting so i'd like to talk to you a little bit about that about optimizing the body for competition and optimizing the body's weight. Do you have any general observations about how people can do that? I think that if you eat right, you're going to sit at a lower body fat level where you don't need to cut drastically to make a weight class. So I never cut drastically for to make weight because I've always sat seriously around 10% body fat. I don't need to cut any lower. Like I'm, I'm optimal in the sense that my weight is active muscle, right? So the way to cut weight for tournaments is to really sit at a, a a weight where you are holding less body fat generally but still at a healthy level um the idea of sitting at a certain weight where you're kind of a bit chubby because you just eat whatever and then oh yeah i'm going to compete oh i'm going to compete in three weeks so i'm going to starve myself it's ridiculous and so what i see over and over is people do these drastic cutting calories um and then they also wear these sweatsuits okay this is like seriously one of my pet peeves and I don't know how this culture got so blown out in the wrong way. These sweatsuits, like people, they train and then they don't drink, but they do it three weeks out. So they're dehydrating their bodies way before they fight, right? And so they're, they're actually training their bodies to hold on or to retain the water. So they're doing their bodies a disservice. So when they finally give their body the fluids they need after the fight, their bodies are going to suck everything up like a sponge and retain the water and they're going to be heavier and fatter than when they started. So, yeah. And I've seen also some horrible things like parents really, you know, wanting their kids to compete. Cool. That's great. But if you've got a 12-year-old daughter whose body's changing and going through all this stuff, let her compete at the weight her body's comfortable at. Like, seriously, if I see a 12-year-old in a sweatsuit starving herself, it's just a recipe for an eating disorder down the track. I think that's all very valid, very salient. And and there are times when I think jiu-jitsu just shouldn't have weight classes. Because I grew up wrestling, and all of this, these behaviors that you describe are endemic in wrestling, and particularly for young bodies, for, like, yeah. young men and women that are, like, whose bodies are changing, whose brains haven't fully developed. It's just unhealthy. And so, uh, so I wonder, like, one of the beautiful things that, that I think about jujitsu is it teaches some, someone who is the size of you or me how to compete against giant monsters. Um, and you talked a little bit about your training today. And, like, you, when we were, uh, we were t- taking the seminar, you mentioned, you know, you want to be able to surf on people because you used to train with these huge, strong athletes that had physical advantages against you. I'm wondering how you developed some of your ability to stay on top, to transition, and, you know, maybe if you could talk about how you were able to train yourself to do that. Um, yeah, I went through this stage probably, like, later purple belt level where I was like, gosh, I'm really having trouble um, understanding the difference on when to kind of really use a pressure and when to move. I couldn't grasp the two and so what I decided to do was grab a lot of junior belts like even even the kids and just move on them I I wasn't looking for submissions I was looking only to move so if I got mount I'd move somewhere else if I got an armbar I'd move somewhere else if I got back I'd move somewhere else I just kept moving Um, and so because because I just kept moving I then learnt to know where to move so over the years that built up and so now I know that 
I know when I should be moving. I know when I'm losing the position. But because I've trained so much with just moving, I know where to move to. I've got all my options based on where they're going to move. So it's good because it means I'm always like three, four, five steps ahead. Yeah. I want, I want to get back to, you know, eventually I want to get back to jiu-jitsu competition and how being a competitor has prepared you to be the instructor that you are. But I want to finish on the weight, cla- the weight class thing just with one other question, which is mm-hmm. the flip side to the horrible stories about weight cutting and, and bad practices. What do you think the optimal way to reach your ideal weight three weeks out, two weeks out, one week out? Like what kind of things do you do? Do you, do you restrict calories? Do you change up the foods you're eating? What are, what's the best way that people can do it to avoid those problems? That's actually really quite a long question. Um, Wait, not a long question. The answer to it's long um, because there are actually so many factors to to deal with eating right for weight loss. Um, I have a nutrition ebook, not to sell you guys anything, but it it talks about the the how to eat for weight loss, the what to eat for weight loss, when to eat for weight loss, and why. Because what you eat and the timing. And how much and when you eat it based on your training and your sleep and everything, it all plays into factors. So I can't really answer, like if I answered, I'd need to answer the whole thing because there really are a lot of factors. Um, So what's really great is since I really made it public that I'm doing a lot more personalized diets, a lot of women have been coming to me for the guidance and men. I've got a couple of um, diets for dudes (laughs) Um, and so what I really focus on is educating the client about all this stuff so that, yes, I'm guiding them, but then they can spend the rest of their lives making informed choices about to eat so that they are at the weight they want to be for the rest of their lives. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I think it's just it's great that they're being proactive about wanting to know this stuff. Um, yeah, it's great. We'll post a link to the ebook in on our Facebook page so that folks that are interested can access that. Are you still taking clients for for personal training and such like that? Um, I'm taking clients now for the month of October, so I'm still booked up for the rest of this month. But October, there's some openings. So yeah, hit me up. My website is sophiafit.com, so you can reach me there. But the other thing I'm doing is I'm building up for another five day challenge. So my first five-day challenge was um, I released um, a meal plan for five days and I was blown away because I didn't expect much but 215 ladies joined and they all shared their experience of, of my menu online with each other. So it was this wonderful community and the photos of the, like my meals, my recipes they made, like it was just incredible. Um, and so now I've just started gearing up for my next five-day challenge, which is the 7th of November, which is working out for weight loss. And there's five videos which are like shows the different aspects of working out. You know, there's cardio and there's more weight sculpting and then different body parts like you know, the chicks like to have a booty workout and toned arms and stuff. So, <laughs> so I'm actually expecting about a thousand. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm really excited. So on my website, you'll see information about the five day challenge there. And then there's also information about signing up for um, personalized diet and workout plans. So folks that want to get involved with any of those things can go to sophiafit.com. Correct. And you can also go to my Sophia Fit Facebook fan page. There's information there as well. So moving back just briefly to, like, I want to talk a little bit about 
how you came up training and who some of the, the toughest women that you trained with were like uh, either trained with as, as training partners or competed against just people that stick out in your mind is like wow she was really tough she was really technical these are some of the best that, that I was around mm-hmm. I've trained with a lot of girls and they're just incredible you know hats off to them all um, you know uh, I've I had a really, really tough match with Fabiana Borge um, for the Pan Ams. Man, it was like almost to the death. You know, we were just going at it to the end. She ended up winning on points. Um, And um, I've had some really good training with Michelle Nicolini. She's amazing. And Mackenzie Dern, she's amazing. And we run these camps together in Mexico. So, yeah, it's just a real honour. Their movement is beautiful. You know, um, but now another girl, Talita Alenka, she's just moved over here and she's training at, at um, Corbinia, Las Vegas, where I train at. And she's um, cream of the crop too. She's excellent. And she just fought Mackenzie at the Pro to Win last week. Uh, and yeah, it was a really great fight. So yeah, I'm happy for both those two ladies that are just getting out there and you know, doing a really great job of representing women's jiu-jitsu. How do you think your career as a competitor prepared you to do the instruction that you do now? And what's the biggest difference in in mentality between being a competitor and being a teacher? The difference is profound. Being a competitor, you're selfish because you're focusing entirely on yourself and your A game and all that, and it needs to be done. You have to put 100% in. Being a teacher is actually about giving back to others. So um, in all honesty, I've always been a teacher. So I trained as a gymnast for 10 years and then I started teaching gymnastics at a young age. So the entire time I've been teaching. So I taught gymnastics and then I worked as a trainer um, and teacher and all that stuff and then teaching jiu-jitsu along my whole journey as well. Um, And Honestly, teaching is really what I knew I was meant to do and what I really wanted to do. And competing, I had things on my bucket list, right? But I really felt that competing for me was a way to get the recognition to go and teach. If you, unfortunately, if you don't compete, you're not on the map at all, really. I mean, there's a f- there are a few who have done it without stepping on the competition mat at all. But, you know, they're few and far between. Yeah, so I don't know. My focus really now is teaching. I'm not sure if I have any intentions to compete again, but I don't, I don't think I need to, you know. I think I'm really developing a niche for myself by um, kind of being a one-stop shop in some ways for a lot of the women who want the guidance for teaching and want the guidance for the other aspects of, of life that happens if you're a female athlete. What is your favorite match of all time? that you ever competed again? Was it the match against Fabiana at the Pans? Or is there, is there a match that stands out to you? Like, that was really fun, or that was extremely tough? Mm. You know, I've had a few great matches, but that have been extremely contentious. Um, oh, God. Because I've been Australian, I've been this odd one out, and I've been subject to a lot of... Um, referee decisions if you know what I mean so there's actually a lot of seriously unfortunate incidences that are that have happened to me competing where I should have won that title and I didn't so 
yeah, I've had a lot of good matches, but in some ways I actually haven't sort of got the recognition that I wanted either. It's just, yeah, I've always been a bit of a black sheep. Um, and my journey actually has been quite similar to Penny Thomas, who was, you know, she was a gymnast. She was South Africa's first black belt. You know, she's really killed it in the competition circuit. But she had a struggle, you know. She really worked hard to get the recognition she has. You know, her journey wasn't easy. And that's why I have nothing but utmost respect for her. And, you know, we're good friends. And, yeah, she's amazing. And you were Australia's first woman black belt, is that right? Yes. So I did my first jiu-jitsu class and then, you know, I was hanging out with my friends and I said, oh, my God, I love this weird sport where everyone's rolling around in pyjamas. I'm going to be Australia's first female black belt. I'm going to be the first chick to get a black belt in this country. And everyone laughed at me. I'm like, ah, oh, stuff you guys. So, and that's the thing with me. I don't do things by halves. I'm in it all or nothing. Yeah. One, speaking of being Australian, one thing I noticed during during your seminar today is there were a few little terms that were a bit, that I hadn't heard before. Like you call what we call the initiate guard, you had call it the Chinese wall, and or like the the, the, the what we would call a Granby roll. You had a different term for that. Have you noticed terminological differences between? I Aust- have. Yes. Yes. Um, so because there's things that people say to me, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't think I know what that is, and I think that I don't know jujitsu. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of things that I haven't seen, but but I do know it. I did know what they were talking about or referring to. I just never heard that term before. Uh, but the the thing generally too is that um, I've had to lose a lot of my Aussie slang because people here in the states just don't know what I'm talking about. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> so um, now a lot of people think I'm British because my accent's gotten more British because I've really had to take the Aussie slang and and the phrases I say out. And so when I'm on the phone to my family back in Australia, they all laugh at me because I'm like British. I'm like, no, I'm not. (laughs) So I want to keep my Australian accent for as long as I can, but I've been living here for nine years, so it might start disappearing. What are some of the Australian phrases that you don't use that you wish that Americans knew what they meant, so you could just use them? Can I kind of swear a little bit politely? So, um, okay, when something goes really badly, it hits the fan. I mean, think about it. You splash on the fan, it goes everywhere. It's a beautiful metaphor. And then another one, um, oh, he spat the dummy. So, so people have no idea what I'm saying when I say that. I, I'm one of them. What? No, no. Like this is great. I, I it's instantly evocative, but I have no idea what it means. So what does it what does it mean to have spat the dummy? <laughs> so um, in Australia, the pacifier that you give a baby is called a dummy, and so when a baby's having a screaming fit, it's too busy crying with its mouth open, so it drops the dummy out of its mouth. <laughs> so, <laughs> hence, if someone's like cracking the sh, maybe they've spat the dummy too. <laughs> I'm instantly working spat the dummy into my lexicon. We need to have a spat the dummy t-shirt. But there's other day-to-day things like trash can is bin and um, kitchen counter is a bench. And so these are things that I say every day and people are like, what? You know, Um, and with my children, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. So in the house, I use my usual Australian words and it's funny. They go to school and some of the kids don't know what they're referring to. Um, But we're on, I'm... 
I'm on a battle pretty much. I'm shoveling mm. uphill right now with them. <laughs> because <laughs> they come to me after going to school and they're like, Mommy, can I have a banana? And I'm like, okay, Mom, can I have a banana? <laughs> And they don't get the banana until they say it correctly. But really, it's, <laughs> it's a losing battle. Yeah. <laughs> Jiu-jitsu is an international sport, and this is just one of many reasons why why that's so great. So is there anything that I haven't asked about that you really, really wished I would have asked about? No, nothing jumps to mind. I'm just, you know what, I'm... I'm just putting my head down and working. I'm honestly really trying to make a difference and build my brand, Sophia Fit, because I'm no longer I'm no longer married to Robert Drysdale. I know lo- I'm no longer part of that gym or anything, um, and I'm just focusing on myself. I'm focusing on building my brand, which really is all about health and fitness and empowerment through knowledge about health and fitness. So, yeah. You know, I really hope it truly, truly succeeds. Um, but I've realised I'll die trying, like like as in I could live under a bridge type thing. That's the choice I've made. <laughs> we hope you don't have to. And you can always come back to North Carolina and eat more good food and teach more seminars and show us how to not get thrown off bigger, stronger opponents. And we would welcome, welcome to have you back to North Carolina anytime. Well, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to coming back. Um, and, yeah, anyone who's interested in any of the camps I'm doing or my challenges or personalized diets or anything, just go to my website, um, sophiafit.com or my Instagram or Facebook or any of that. So I think you'll add a link, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much for being on the show and folks, we will post the link to all of Sophia's products and her website in, in on our Facebook page on our Twitter and Instagram. So thanks again. I really enjoyed doing that interview, and I want to thank again everyone at TFTC Academy and Gita Bot for making it happen, and thanks most of all to Sophia Drysdale, who I thought was a, a, the perfect blend of knowledgeable and funny, and I thought that that was, uh, you know, and I really enjoyed learning some of what Australian slang was, and I'm totally working some of those things into my into my terminology. We're going to post, when we post a link to the show on the Facebook, we will post a link to Sophia's latest five-day challenge and her nutrition ebook, so you can connect with her if you want. Uh, or you can always search the hashtag SophiaFit on Instagram and keep in touch with what she's doing. So before we get on out of here, uh, earlier we had thrown out a challenge to the listeners where I, I called for uh, pictures of people's old belts and belt promotion ceremony video. And we got so many great submissions that uh, we decided to put it together into a multimedia video for Facebook. And I threw out a, a, you know, a request for folks to tell us stories about what their belt meant to them. Now, some of you that follow us on Instagram will have seen this video already. And if you haven't, please go to our Facebook page, Cage Side Radio, to check it out. But I was really happy with the way the video turned out and with the way the audio itself was. And like thought we got some tremendous stories from people from blue belts up to black belts telling stories about what their belt meant to them. And, you know, jiu-jitsu is a long journey. And the connections you make along the way with people, I think Sophia talked a little bit about this as well, are some of the things that matter the most. And so I really enjoyed hearing from our listeners and making this. And so go check out the video on our Facebook page so you can get the visuals of these people's ratty, well-worn, battle-tested belts. But for now, I'm going to play you the audio just so you can hear what some of your fellow listeners feel about their jiu-jitsu belts. 
This is in response to what does my belt mean to me, and it's about my purple belt. It seemed like I was a blue belt forever, and when I went to Japan to compete in the Hicks and Gracie Cup as a blue belt, I didn't realize that I was being promoted to purple the day of the tournament. So as I looked at the brackets, couldn't find my name in the blue belt, my instructor gave me my purple belt. At which point I was excited to compete and then immediately afraid because now I had to step into the purple belt division and compete. But once I put that belt on, I felt comfortable, went out, won a medal, and then was the happiest guy in the world. All belts are important, but that one is special to me. Hi, this is Ethan. I, uh, I started training on uh, July 4th, 2010. Uh, so it's been just a hair over six years now, and uh, I'm a four-stripe blue belt. I uh, received my blue belt on February 1st, 2013. One of the biggest things for me about training was uh, I was very bullied uh, throughout elementary, uh, all throughout middle school, and uh, all the way through my freshman year of high school. Um, I, I didn't look for jiu-jitsu necessarily for self-defense, uh, but more of just an outlet I was always an athlete of some sort, always played basketball, uh, tried skateboarding, got injured a lot. And uh, when I when I found jiu-jitsu, I immediately fell in love. Uh, I realized that when you do it, um, there's only one loser and one winner. And uh, it's 100% up to you to decide whether you can be the winner or the loser. Uh, it's very absolute. So to me, that was a very, very big... Uh, portion of sticking with it for so long. Uh, I love being able to control someone else's body and being able to control my own body at the same time. Having my blue belt for three years now and uh, hopefully getting close to my purple, uh, I've just been sitting back a lot and thinking a lot about why I started training and uh, what drew me in and what kept me going. And uh, through all the tough times, uh, all the defeats, all the winning, uh, it's really nice to remember why I started training. My brown belt that I recently achieved uh, means a lot to me. It shows me and reminds me how far God has brought me through this martial art. And just every single tournament I've done leading up to this, always glorifying Jesus and just all the hard work that's been put in, all the places I've been to, and just the fact that it's one away from Black Belt, it's just, uh, it almost leaves me speechless. I'm excited for this belt, and I'm excited to continue to compete. Hi, this is Dave Porter. I am displaying to training partners everywhere when they see it my ways that I have a certain level of proficiency. Now, I use that to my advantage because people will assume different things and uh, it usually plays out to my benefit. Now that I'm uh, rocking a black belt, it's kind of a funny situation because we all know black belts aren't all created equally. So it's my job to try and make their interpretation of what a black belt is fall short in comparison to what they expect when they see me goofing around on the mat and having a good old time. Thanks as always, and all the best.
That's our show for the week. My thanks to everybody who participated, particularly Sophia Drysdale, Dave Porter, Daniel Frank, Ethan Daly, and Anthony Elbert. My thanks to Trevor Hayes for calling in and to Daniel Branch for being a big part of the show as well. Uh, my name is Jeff Shaw. I have a lot of fun doing the show, and I'm really glad that you all uh, join us each week. So my thanks most of all to you, the listeners. For some bonus content, Turn to our Facebook page where we will post a link to Sophia Drysdale's five-day challenge, her nutrition ebook, and possibly an uncensored version of the interview so you can hear the words that we can't play on the radio. We'll be back here next Sunday, and thanks again for listening.